So uh, tonight, what we want to do is we want to take a look at the section of the book of Exodus uh, that's talking about the first nine plagues. And then next week, we're actually going to talk about the last plague. So uh, we will be in Exodus 7, 14 through 10, 29 tonight. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to try to uh, point out some things, hopefully they're of interest to you. Um, things that sometimes you don't notice, uh, either because you're not looking for them if you're reading a passage of scripture, or you're just not familiar with uh, where it occurs other places in, in the Bible and the differences sometimes that are there. So this is part five uh, in our study, Echoes uh, from Exodus. And I'd like to begin with an introduction I uh, put this up each week just to remind you, I'm breaking the book into two parts uh, when Israel is in Egypt, those are the first 15 chapters, and then part two when they are at Mount Sinai, which takes up the rest of the book from chapter 16 forward. So where we're at tonight is this second subpoint, the plagues chapter 7 through 13, and of course, the 10th plague will be the one that will uh, cause the departure from Egypt, uh, moving over toward Mount Sinai. And we've used this map a couple of different times where there is some question as to where Mount Sinai is, the traditional spot being down where St. Catherine's Monastery has been for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Or as we talked about in the earlier chapters of Exodus, it, it makes more sense that it might be over here in Midian where Moses was taking care of the flocks and he was out uh, taking care of the flocks when he had the experience of the burning bush. And uh, this might be the very same spot that is also called Mount Horeb. So there's a little bit of debate there regarding uh, which is the correct um, uh, location. So uh, by tradition, it's over here in the Sinai Peninsula, um, but from other cross-references, like we talked about when uh, Paul mentions this area uh, in the book of Galatians, uh, he talks about it being over in Arabia. So that's a little bit of review, and uh, what I want to do is just kind of get started into this section on the plagues by uh, making... Uh, just a, a couple of initial observations. So when you're taking a look at this section of Exodus, the thing that pops out over and over again is how Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. And the redundancy that is in this section of him hardening his heart, uh, where he's about to give in and then changes his mind, and relents and won't let the people go. All of this is a buildup to a crash course in the form of uh, who is the ultimate Lord. And that's what these plagues are designed to do. They come in the form of different natural disasters, some not so natural disasters. Uh, but over and over again, it's butting heads with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, I think, ultimately is this ultimate example of one who doesn't care about the common good. And what I mean by that is 
he, of course, doesn't want to let go of his workforce. However, when they go through this series of plagues, it's not just him personally that's experiencing this, um, this form of disaster. It's the people as a whole. And what we find is that he is, in order to keep his power, to keep his workforce, and to continue to maximize his profit, he is willing to let his own people suffer and endanger his own people. So when we think of the plagues, don't just think of this as a personal consequence of Pharaoh and his hardness of heart. Think of it in terms of Pharaoh's leadership as the monarch that really doesn't care that it's affecting all of his subjects. Does that make sense to everybody? So when you look at uh, what he does, the hardness of heart is something not just toward God, but it's also toward his own people as well. And so there's this common denominator, I think, that has been true from time immemorial. I mean, that's where people uh, who are in position of power will often put profit over people. And uh, that is seen quite drastically here in this section of Exodus. So by the time you get to the end of the 10 plagues, which we won't finish that until next week when we talk about the 10th plague, um, the plagues do their job. Now, there, it, he will eventually let the people go, but there's some other things that are going on here that I think is part of the purpose of the plagues. It's not just raw displays of power. It is actually an attack against the pantheon of different gods that uh, the Egyptians worship that's at the focal point of some of these plagues. And you'll see what I mean as we move through our material here tonight. Uh, any questions, any comments on this um, initial slide? So when you look at the 10 plagues, um, you would have to say that it is a deluge of destruction that would cripple an entire empire as, as it works its way through all of these um, consequences upon uh, the people there. The plagues, it seems to uh, touch a nerve um, in every part of the Exodus story and what we're finding is it's intentionally arranged, uh, which brings us back to a common question that we asked earlier on, and that is, um, are these strictly historical representations or are there other things that are going on here? In other words, there's kernel of history here but it's expanded in a variety of ways uh, to attack the worldview of the Egyptians as the Israelites knew it. So when you're, when you're dealing with this issue of history, as we said a few weeks ago, when it's just pure history, the question comes up, why aren't these events um, as emphasized in 
other parts of ancient Near Eastern literature. It becomes really the heart of the Old Testament because this is what's going to lead the people to the promised land in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, it will have allusions in the New Testament too. And of course, it's part of the festival celebration of the Jewish people in their traditions, Passover being an important yearly commemoration of these events. But what about the rest of the world? Why isn't there at least the acknowledgement that uh, Egypt is brought to its knees by other surrounding empires? And I don't have an easy answer for that. If there are some illusions, it's certainly not something that uh, is really emphasized. In other words, you would think uh, all of us are kind of familiar with uh, locker room um, uh, talk um, uh, between teams as there's trash talk that goes on when a series uh, goes on. And you would think that those who were enemies of the Egyptians would use the trash talk about these plagues um, than what we find in, in historical uh, accounts. But we'll have to leave that as a mystery. I, I don't have a clear answer for that. But what I do want you to notice is in your handout, there is a chart. And I'm going to bring this up here. And I want to make a few observations um, so you can see here, Exodus from chapter seven all the way through 13 covers these 10 plagues. There's references in the Psalms, Psalm 78 and Psalm 105, and there are not the same number of plagues that are recorded in these two other spots in the Old Testament. So what you have is the listing here of the plagues one through 10 on the left-hand side of this chart. And it's found in this order, uh, river turned to blood, frogs, gnats, and so on. What you're going to find though, is when you do cross-reference work in Psalm 78, uh, the number one plague that is mentioned is the river that's turned to blood, but then it doesn't follow this sequence. When we read it, and I'm going to show this to you in a second, so you can keep your thumb in Exodus, and we're going to go to Psalms just for a second. But you'll notice it skips over um, the idea of, um, of the frogs as the number two plague. What's listed in Psalm 78 is the plague of the flies is number two, and the frogs are number three, and there's not there's not a mention of the gnats or the livestock that are diseased or the boils. Then as you move through uh, the uh, other ones, then it talks about the hail and frost and thunderbolts before the locust, but it's in the Exodus account, what you're going to find is that the uh, locust is number eight, even though here in Psalm 78, it's listed as number four. Then there is no mention of darkness at all. And by the time you get to the last one, the death of the firstborn, that's number six in this Psalm, where it is the apex or the climax of the Exodus. So I want you to go over to Psalm 78, just for a second. And when you get there, uh, you can see how long this Psalm is because it 
it really is recounting for the generations uh, a lot of the historical markers for the nation of Israel. But if you come down just to a short little window, beginning in verse 43, uh, actually start verse 42, I want to read this through verse 51. And then you're, then I'll just show it to you as you're looking at the text. So verse 42, it says, um, they did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the oppressor. He's talking about his own people here. The day he displayed his miraculous signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood. They could not drink from their streams. He sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. He gave them crops to the grasshopper, their produce to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore figs with sleet. He gave over their cattle to the hail, their livestock to bolts of lightning, and he unleashed against them his hot anger, his wrath, indignation, and hostility, a band of destroying angels. He prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death. He gave them over to the plague, and he struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of manhood in the tents of Ham. Now, that paragraph is talking about the plagues. But as you read through it, and if you were to put a, a notation in the uh, margin of your Bible, okay, turning the rivers to blood, that's number one. Swarms of flies and frogs is number two, or uh, swarms of flies, number two. Frogs is number three. As you move on down, then you see uh, there's the mention of the hail, and then finally, number six is the firstborn of Egypt. So the question is, why? I mean, it's not like he's trying to save space. You see how long Psalm 78 is, right? Why doesn't he mention these other plagues? So we won't, uh, we won't necessarily turn uh, and read through this section on Psalm 105, but I do want to make a couple of observations. So Psalm 78 has six plagues. Psalm 105 has eight between verses 26 through 36. But notice what is number one. It's not river turned to blood. It's darkness. That leads this uh, section of, um, of plagues is it begins with darkness. Then number two is the river turned to blood. Actually, it's the waters. We'll see that back in Exodus. It's more than the Nile River. Then the frogs. Number four is the flies. Number five is the gnats. Number six is hail and lightning. Number seven is locusts. And number eight is the death of the firstborn. So what do we have in common in all three sections that we find these stories? It's the climax is the death of the firstborn whether it's number six, number eight, or number 10, that's the climax. That's what we find in common. But the others are rearranged. So the question becomes, why is there uh, this change of order? Why don't they agree? So what scholars do is they go, okay, which is the older account here? 
Is it the Exodus that's the older account or are the older accounts those two stories in the book of Psalms and then the Exodus account comes later and there's a rhyme and reason why it's narrated in the way it is in the book of Exodus. Because what you have is the number 10 uh, symbolizing completion and perfection of judgment from God in the Exodus account. And you have three cycles of three in the Exodus account. So if the narrator is trying to create a pattern it might be that the Exodus account, as we talked about in our early studies, this is one of the reason it reflects probably a later date for the writing of Exodus and even post-exilic uh, uh, recording is because the narrator is going to take what happened in Egypt and is going to put it into three cycles of three and then the 10th one is gonna be the climax. So there's a lot of you know nerdy type of conversations about this among scholars. So some thinks that maybe um, it's the psalmists that are playing fast and loose with the older narrative version of Exodus. I'm not sure we can come to a conclusion on that. What I do want you to notice though, is that when it's all finally arranged in Exodus, these three cycles of three, then the climax of the 10th plague, all increases with intensity. And so the Exodus account is a build up to that 10th plague. And that becomes uh, the most dominant focal point in Exodus because that's what springs the people from slavery. That makes sense to everybody. Okay. Questions, comments. Now you're going to see this in the second chart. So when you're looking at this literary pattern that the narrator of Exodus is using, he's just using three cycles and a climactic play. So you have blood, frogs, gnats, cycle number one then flies, livestock, boils, number two, hail, locusts, and darkness, number three, and death of the firstborn. But notice the pattern here. In each cycle, is Pharaoh given a warning that this is coming? And notice the pattern, yes, yes, no. In each of these three cycles, the first two are warnings, and then the third one, it comes without warning. Same in the cycle number two, same in cycle number three. Then the other thing that the narrator is doing is all of these cycles of the plagues are given in, the, uh, in different um, emphases of time during the day. So in each cycle, the very first plague in each one, the warning is given in the morning, in the morning, in the morning. But then we're not given details on the other two. None, 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 none. And so what you have here is interesting by the way of the beauty of this literary presentation um, 
And I don't think we see it in English, but I think those who would hear and listen to uh, the Exodus narrative would pick up on some of these things by the word usages that are used for mourning uh, and seeing the response of Pharaoh's hardening of his heart and so forth. Now, the last column here is interesting as well. So what instructions does God give to Moses? Uh, he, he says in the first two of each of these cycles, go and present yourself to Pharaoh, but not the third one of each cycle. So the same pattern is found in all of these uh, plagues here um, in each cycle. It's following the exact same pattern in each one. And then finally, when you get to the plague of the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh is given a warning. There's not a specific time mentioned uh, other than um, after the Israelites put the blood on the doorpost, which we'll talk that, about that next week. Um, it, it the angel of death sweeps through. And it's interesting here that it comes without warning and Moses is not given instruction uh, to Pharaoh. So one other thing, and I should have put it on this chart and I didn't. In each cycle, there's a different person that initiates um, what's going to happen. So in the first cycle, Aaron is the focal point. He's the one that's laying his rod down. He is the one that is turning the river to blood. In the second cycle, it's God. And in the third cycle, it's Moses that initiates. So in each of these cycles, there's a focus on a different personality, Aaron, God, and then Moses. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but you can see the beauty of this literary work. If you take a look at this chart and the way the redactors of the book of Exodus put it together, the psalmists weren't concerned about that. And that's why maybe they played a little loose with the details of the order. Does that make sense to everybody? The narrator of Exodus finds this very important. Any thoughts? Okay, go back to Exodus. And I want us to think not just about what is happening in Exodus as an isolated thing, but I want us to see it in relationship to a pattern that has already occurred in Genesis. So when you think about the Genesis account, God shows off in Genesis 1 by speaking and everything is coming into existence and everything is good. Um, and what we find is um, the beginning of Genesis uh, 1 is in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth and there was darkness Okay, remember, uh, if you want to, I'll read this for you. In Genesis 1.1, there's a very specific emphasis on what God is doing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. 
and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God begins to bring order out of the chaos that has already been in existence. Uh, a timestamp is not given here. I happen to think that this formlessness and emptiness is millions of years. That's my uh, that's my take on this. But what we find is God begins to bring order out of chaos. Now, it doesn't take too long. By the time you get to chapter six, when violence uh, continues to erupt and magnify in the human experience, God says he's going to start over. So what does he do? He reintroduces chaos. The chaos in the, in the form of a flood destroys everything except Noah, his family, and those animals that were brought upon the earth. This reintroduction of chaos is a way of starting over. And as Noah emerges out of the ark, there is this putting things back in its place. So think, remember this pattern, okay? Each plague, it seems, is following that pattern a little bit. It introduces chaos, civilized chaos in, in the course of civilization. And it goes berserk for a while. And then there's the chance for Pharaoh to bring order back to this chaotic experience that his people are going through, but he refuses to do it. And it goes into another cycle again and again and again. So what we find though is each of the people in, in Egypt will experience the full force of this chaos. The Israelites will experience some of them, but not all of them. They are protected from some of the chaos while the Egyptians aren't. And this pattern then ultimately comes to a head in the, um, here we have the flood story again. When they are moving out of Egypt, they cross through the Red Sea and the army of Egypt following behind them is drowned in the waters. That's, that's, the, that's the Genesis 6 flood account all over again. And then from there, the nation of Israel is to go into a land a land that will flow with milk and honey, and they are to establish their identity as God's people. And of course, then the introduction of the Sinai covenant that is given to Moses, including the Ten Commandments, but a lot more than that, um, will uh, govern their new existence. So chaos and order is a part of a theme that was introduced in Genesis and it's being reintroduced again in Exodus. Does that make sense? Comments or questions? So now we come to what I think is really interesting. 
So this is not just a battle between God and Pharaoh. This is a cosmic battle that is taking place between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. So I want you to, you're in Exodus, um, go over to chapter 12, verse 12. Now this, this is after these plagues. And there's a comment that is made in Exodus 12, 12. So it says here, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. There's the purpose of the plagues. It's an attack against the gods of Egypt. Not just against Pharaoh, but against the gods that hold sway over the Egyptian empire. And each plague is an attack against either one or more gods that the Egyptians worship. Now, that brings us back to something we introduced a couple of weeks ago as well. And that is, in the ancient Near East, everyone, it was part of the air that they breathed, believed in many gods, including the Israelites. But this is showing that there is one all-powerful God that is greater than the other gods. Now, eventually, Israel will get to the point where they will believe in one true God, but that's not something early in their existence. It is something that will come later. What we find is, and the word we use was monolatry, that they believed that there was one God, Yahweh, that was greater than the other gods. But you will find hints and guesses throughout the Old Testament that they believed in multiple gods. It just happens to be this God that initiated relationship with them through Moses is the greater of all gods. And part of this cosmic battle is to show to a superpower like Egypt that even though Pharaoh is a god in and of himself, and he's the earthly representative of these gods, there is one God, the God of the slaves, the God who makes his home in the wilderness, the one who takes a, 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 um, a person that is in exile in Moses as he ran away uh, from killing um, an Egyptian. He becomes the focal point. He becomes the head, and he is the one that's going to lead them. And all of this is in direct contrast to the type of gods that the Egyptians worship. And what we find is this God is different. This God is concerned about the injustice that these people are going through. This God is moved to action. This God is the one that is going to uh, raise Moses up in spite of Moses' insecurity to lead the people out. Does that make sense? So there's this cosmic battle that's taking place here. Yes, Pharaoh is one of the direct objects of it. So are the Egyptian people. But one of the reasons that it comes as it does is because it's the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. And I'm going to show you some of those here in a moment. Um, 
but I want to see if you have any any comments. So obviously we're not going to read through like four chapters of Exodus tonight. So I, we're going to have to kind of take this a little bit uh, as we go through it. And I just want to highlight a few different things. So go back to Exodus 7. And it's here that we see the first plague. Here it's interesting what takes place. Um, if you come down to uh, verse 8, before the plagues even start, Aaron's staff uh, is, uh, is at the focal point here as these plagues begin. You notice in verse 8, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did as the Lord commanded. But here's the deal. The, the magicians of Pharaoh's court are able to duplicate the same uh, piece of magic. So what, what's going on here is probably snake charming is going on a little bit. Um, we've all seen, you know, the playing of the flute and the, you know, coming up out of the basket and snake charming type thing that is found in various uh, parts of the ancient Near East and probably even a little bit today. But the difference is this. You'll notice it says in verse 12, Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. Now that becomes the setup that Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptian people did not have to go through what they went through. But verse 13 really represents why the plagues will unfold as they do. Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. So he has this hardness of heart that will then unleash these plagues. The first one being turning the Nile into blood. So here you'll notice in verse 14, it says, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go in the morning. There's a specific time stamp there as he goes out to the water. Okay, what, why is he going out to the water? Probably going to take, take uh, uh, a bath out in the, the river. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go. And, um, and, and here's the purpose of it, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. So what happens is the Nile is turned to blood or something blood-like that kills the fishes, as you see in the following verses. What's interesting is found in verse 21. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Now, some people try to figure out what was this phenomena that occurred. I think that's kind of beside the point. 
Uh, was there some natural phenomenon that turned uh, the Nile River blood-like? Let's not miss the point of the text. The point of the text is this attack on the life source of the Egyptians, the Nile River, prevented them from eating uh, of the fish that come from it, drinking its water, and that type of thing. So um, if you look at verse 24, it's interesting that what the Egyptians now need to do is dig wells. They didn't need to do that before they had the Nile River. And it says in verse 24, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So if this is as Exodus 12, 12 uh, just told us that this is an attack against the Egyptian gods, you see a picture here of one of the gods that they worshiped here. This is Happy, H-A-P-I. Um, he uh, is a god that um, oversaw the yearly inundation of the Nile River that was vital for the Egyptian uh, existence and so forth. So yes, it affects the people, uh, but it is also represented, uh, representing the fact that you can't trust Hopi. Look to Yahweh. He's the greater God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, he won't let them go. So then the, in the second plague, you have here frogs. And the multiplication of frogs here is, again, it has a direct attack against a god they believed. And here you see a picture of uh, the goddess of fertility, Heket, H-E-K-E-T, who had the head of a frog. So it was believed that this god is the god that assisted women in childbirth. Um, she was considered to be the wife of the creator of the world and the goddess of uh, fertility. So fertility, obviously, in ancient world was extremely important, uh, whether it was in reference to humans or livestock, uh, the fertility of the land to produce um, uh, things to eat and so forth. So here in verses 1 through 15, you again find uh, the account, seven days pass, verse 25 says, and what we find is that they're being warned that there's going to be a multitude of frogs that are going to multiply, and um, verse 5 says, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff. Here again, the staff is, is a focal point. And I want you to notice here, it's Aaron. Remember what I said in the three cycles in that chart? The, in the first three, Aaron is, is the one that is the focal point and takes the initiative. So all these frogs come and what we find is uh, obviously all of this would make life very, um, very icky, uh, all these frogs. Uh, that um, would poison things, that would be in the way, that all of this type of thing. And now it's interesting, verse 8, 
Pharaoh seems to be one that is going to soften a bit because he asked Moses and Aaron, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. Now he's including himself with the people here. I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So, you know, he's asking for intervention. And Moses and Aaron do. And there is a relief from the frogs. Um, and then when all the, dog, the frogs die out, they're piled into heaps, verse 14, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardens his heart. So now the third plague will come and it will complete the first cycle that we find here. And the question at this point is, um, is this, what, what are these? Are these sand fleas? Uh, are these lice? What, what's going on? Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your staff. Tell, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust to the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. So here in the NIV, it's translated as gnats. In some other translations, it is lice. Uh, we're not real sure to tell you the, the truth. Are, are these mosquitoes? Are these fleas? What it does seem, though, is whatever it is, um, is something that uh, had the ability to pester people. Um, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where it is well, we just had the midges a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, you walk out and they get in your nose and ears and mouth sometimes and all that type of thing. If this is the type of uh, insect that would dig under the skin, uh, lice or fleas of some sort, obviously that would be painful as well. It seems as though this is an attack against this god called Geb, G-E-B. Um, this is the god uh, of the earth. And that's what's emphasized here, that these gnats or whatever they are, are coming up out of the earth. And um, what's interesting here is the emphasis in verse 18 is the magicians could not duplicate this one. They could, the, uh, the staff that becomes a snake, they could duplicate. Um, in the water to blood, they somehow had the ability to duplicate, but not this one. Um, what I think this is especially uh, important to notice, cleanliness and holiness is not just something that's found in the Hebrew um, uh, holiness code. The priests of Egypt also uh, would have to do ceremonial washings. Uh, why does so many uh, of the priests of Egypt look like Yul Brenner? Because they would shave their head intentionally so that there would not be um, these type of insects that could get into their hair, uh, that type of thing. So what you find is this was a ritual of the priests, um, and they would be considered unclean if this was lice or fleas or 
uh, as it says here in the New International Version, gnats. But again, there's a God that's at, at the focal point of this. Does that make sense? That there, it's an attack against their religious system. So we'll go through these other cycles a little bit quicker, but any questions? Next is the fourth plague is swarms. Um, again, these swarms are something that um, we, we take a guess at some of these type of things. So the NIV says these are plagues of flies. Um, some, some translations will refer to these as beetles of some sort. Um, and the reason, if this is a, a tap, against Egyptian gods, one of the gods that the Egyptians um, worshipped had the head of a beetle, Amon-Ra, A-M-O-N-R-A. Uh, so that might be what's at the, at the focal point of this. Uh, you'll notice here that this is now a plague that doesn't affect the Israelites. They are spared from this. Um, so uh, what we find taking place is, come down to verse 22, on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Now, what you need to remember about that is when Joseph brought his family down because of the famine in the book of Genesis, Goshen is where he had his family settled. So there's this idea of connection again with these people that are going to become the people of God, the land of Goshen, where my people live. So there's this emphasis here. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I am the Lord um, and uh, you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land and I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So now what we're finding is the Israelites do not suffer all of the plagues. They suffer some of them, but not all of them. And in this fourth plague, the beginning of the second cycle, where the initiative is taken not by Aaron, but by God, and that's what's emphasized here, we find him protecting the people. Watch there. Now, this will be true with the next plague. The fifth plague is the livestock that is diseased. If you go over to chapter 9, verse 1, so there's a lot of text here that you could um, read, and the pattern's the same. Pharaoh's about to let him go, and then he changes his mind, and all that type of thing. Here in chapter 9, the plague on the livestock is after um, the proclamation. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. The warning comes, if you refuse to let them go and continue and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring terrible plague on your livestock in the field, your horses, donkeys, camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. Obviously, the economic um, system would be devastated. But... Verse four, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. So this is not going to, you know, you think of a plague 
And here we are, we've been battling this stupid COVID virus for a couple of years now. No one escapes. It affects everybody. But here, whatever disease this is, that's affecting the Egyptian economy and their, their livestock is not affecting the Israelites. Really fascinating. Again, take a look at the head of um, this particular God. When you look at this picture, you'll see that there was a God, Apis, A-P-I-S, that had the head of a bull. And this God goes uh, way, way back. Um, they even had different traditions that when an Apis bull died, which was a kind of a spotted bull, kind of um, a, a mixture of black and white coloring, uh, priests would go and look in, in the pastures of all their people to find these distinctive patches on these animals to, to replace them. So it, it's, it's something that's superstitious. It's something that they are very intentional about keeping alive, this tradition. Okay. Okay, number six. So boils. Um, now, this is interesting because a cross-reference in the book of Deuteronomy tells us that occasionally people would suffer boils, that it would seem to be something in this part of the world that could affect uh, various people. So if, if you have the time and you want to look at that cross-reference, you can. Uh, these were very painful. Remember the story of Job. He was covered with boil as well. Um, these, this god here, uh, uh, Serapis, uh, seems to be uh, at the focal point. He's the god of healing. And in this case here, uh, the plague of the boils, um, yeah, there wasn't relief. Um, in verse 10, it says that they're taking the ashes from their fire and they're putting them onto these boils to try to get some type of relief from the itching and pain that these boils um, would bring. Then a seventh plague, hail, uh, that's in chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Uh, here again, um, the NIV here is talking about, um, about a hailstorm. Take a look at verse 18. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Now, that I find that interesting. When I think of Egypt, I think desert, you know, and hail needs something uh, by way of cold temperature and moisture. Um, yesterday, some, uh, some hail was coming down around us a little bit um, and, and kind of sticking on the deck here in Willoughby. So again, what What's interesting here is what is being used as, as the plague. Um, this is something that would be, I think, something supernatural. This wouldn't be something that would come naturally simply because the part of the world that it's in. But again, another Egyptian god, the sky goddess, 
uh, might be the focal point of this particular plague. So one by one, all of these major players in the Egyptian pantheon are being knocked down. Okay, only, only a couple more. Then a plague of locusts beginning in chapter 10. Um, yeah, these uh, locusts would be devastating to crops. Um, here is another, uh, a god, or actually several of them that pertain to the harvest. Uh, Nepri, Theramuthus, and Seth. Um, locust seems to be a common imagery. Uh, it's used in the prophet Joel's writings uh, about um, locusts invading and destroying the um, the things needed for life and and um, provision. Okay, number nine. This is the last one for tonight. It's the plague of darkness, and in verse twenty one of chapter ten, it says here. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Now Moses is at the focal point in these three cycles." Uh, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over uh, Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. So the, the darkness and the third day is very symbolic. Uh, when, when Christ is placed in the tomb, he's in the place of darkness, not three 24 hours days, but at least portions of three days as well. So that seems to be a symbolism that's pretty uh, common in the scripture as well. Um, this darkness, um, what we find taking place, uh, will lead up to the final plague that we'll look at next week, because what we find is there's chapters that are given for this 10th plague. But here, uh, what we find is finally Pharaoh seems as though he's going to relent. Take a look at verse 24. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. So what he is doing is he wants to make sure that they're gonna come back for uh, their possessions. But he was only gonna let the men go initially and he finally relents and allows the women or at least he says that he's going to allow the women and children to go verse 27 the repetition comes again the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go so now we come to this point where the the, the entire stage has been set up for god to bring one big final a powerful expression that will free the people. And that is the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn. So what I want to do in the last minute or two that I have with you tonight, is I want to read a quote from uh, Walter Bruven out of his book, Prophetic Imagination. He mentions the gods of Egypt are immovable lords of order. They call for sanction and legitimate, uh, a, and legitimate a society of order, which is precisely what Egypt had. In Egypt, as Frankfurt has shown, that's another scholar, 
there were no revolutions, no breaks for freedom. There were only the necessary political and economic arrangements to provide order, naturally, the order of Pharaoh. Thus, the religion of the static gods is not and never could be disinterested, but inevitably it served the interests of the people in charge, presiding over the order and benefiting from that order. And the functioning of that society testified to the rightness of the religion because kings did prosper and bricks did get made. So when these plagues destroy their whole economic base, all of a sudden, it's not just the gods that are being neutered. It's Pharaoh himself and the type of world that he has ordered and he controls. And it goes back to the way we began here uh, uh, this evening. It's it's that evil that puts profit ahead of people uh, that does not care about the safety and well-being of the people. Uh, And this seems to be the, the thing that's getting at the heart of some of these plagues. So, a couple of last points. The radical break of Moses and Israel from imperial reality is a two-dimensional break from both the religion of static triumphalism and the politics of oppression and exploitation. And in the place of the gods of Egypt, creatures of imperial consciousness, Moses discloses that Yahweh, the sovereign one who acts in his lordly freedom, is extrapolated from no social reality and his captive to no social perception, but acts from his own person for his own purposes. The imperial religion was dead. The politics of oppression had failed. This is the ultimate criticism that the assured and alleged power of the dominant culture is now shown to be fraudulent. So that too comes from the prophetic imagination book by Walter Brueggemann. Um, so I don't know what, what you do with all these chapters, except to be reminded that Pharaoh's kingdom of anxiety and oppression, um, that is used to profit himself is being, is being destroyed by the power of almighty God. And it will cost him his own son. Uh, as we'll see next week. But uh, here we find God coming to the aid of his people. And um, he does so by attacking the false gods that the people believed in and trusted in for their prosperity. So as we kind of come to a close tonight, I don't know if there are any thoughts or questions or comments that you have that uh, we'd like to wrap up with before uh, we say goodnight. Any, there's a lot in there, isn't there? There's a lot in this section. There's a lot that's going on. And, uh, you know, just kind of take the this handout and just kind of mull it over and go, oh my gosh, this isn't just a historical account. This is a theological attack uh, against the false pantheon of gods that 
is controlling the people and more importantly, enslaving the Israelites. Some thoughts, comments? Go ahead, Don. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think it is interesting that there has to be something to, to that because otherwise you, would, you wouldn't think there would be so many plays. Mm -hmm. and I think in terms of the hardening the hard bit, I mean, you could probably get that hardened in about three plagues. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, I mean, it, and it could have been presented that way, in other words, it, I mean, to make the same point. So there obviously has to be some other angles of this that, like you've described tonight, that explain why it took 10 plagues, literally. Yeah. I mean, a couple, three or two or three of the larger ones would turn getting dark, firstborn, maybe one or two others could have taken care of it. I mean, so the it's- Firstborn would have taken um, care of it. So I think that's really, there is a lot more to this than meets the eye initially, I think. And you can see why it had become a part of the national consciousness of the people. So let's assume that the psalmists, whether they came first before the Exodus account or came later, what it does show is this was constantly a part of their national consciousness as a people. This helped form who they are, you know, and uh, they won't let it go even to this day. That's part of the purpose of Passover is to tell this story again and again. Right. Other comments? You made the comment on the, uh, the hail. I always, I always found it interesting that in the movie, <laughs> the hail smokes. Did you ever notice that the hail, the hail pieces of hail kind of they remind they look more I'd like have to go back and look at that. I don't remember. <laughs> they look, they look more know. like uh, pieces <laughs> of uh, of uh, what you call it, uh, ice, uh, dry ice. Oh. Than they did. Maybe they were. They may have been pieces of dry ice. I don't know. In the movie, in the yeah. movie set. But I'll go back and look at it again. But <laughs> I, I'll have to look that up. But I don't. I can't tell you the the last time I saw the the movie to tell you the honest truth so <laughs> anybody else so what we're doing sunday is uh after the service is done um we're going to start taking some stuff over to mckinley uh by our cars the small things the keurigs and stuff and uh, i'm going to get a truck to um from lowe's to kind of take over the soundboard and and stuff like that so if you can take a run from the uh, church up to McKinley by just putting some of the small stuff in your car on Sunday, it would be greatly appreciated. So um, we'll leave it at that. And uh, we'll see you online next week. And uh, hope, hopefully we're all well enough that we'll see you on Sunday, okay? Yep. Feel right. better, guys. We'll try. Yeah, I hope you feel better. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Good night, everyone. Bye. Good night. Good night.